is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's listen to the word of the Lord this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. To the praise of your glorious grace. Father, that is our hope and longing for us as a, a people. That your praise and that your glory would be the joy, the delight, the ambition the focus of our lives. And so, Father, to that end, we pray that you would work powerfully now through your word and change us from one degree of glory to another. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said to me, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When man looks at man, he concludes, I am a good person. When man looks at God, he concludes, I am a damned person. His only hope, our only hope, is grace. The grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved, unearned, ill-deserved, loving favor in Jesus Christ. And the good news of Christianity is that grace has arrived. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We continue our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, and Paul's point today is this, by grace you have been saved. Paul will go on to make the point of the whole letter of Ephesians next week when he tells us that the church is God's new creation. But in this passage and in this sermon, Paul is going to tell us how the church came to be. Now, you remember last week, Paul told us that God raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted him. He seated him at his right hand. In this passage, Paul tells us that what God did for Christ, God did for us, his church. He raised us from spiritual death. And he enthroned us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And so the summary statement of all of that glorious work in us is simply this. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Now, before any of you zone out and reach for Instagram in view of how abstract all of this sounds, let me assure you this is far more practical than any of us could possibly think. Because we're living in a time when there are genuine concerns about the future of humanity. We, we look to the East and we see war. We look to the birth rates and we see them plummeting in many of the world's richest nations. Some are even looking to the future and they're afraid that artificial intelligent robots are going to nick our jobs and our planet while they're at it as well. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul exposes the problem underneath all of the world's problems. One that cannot be remedied by education or legislation or, or wealth redistribution. Trusting in those things 
would be like trusting in a water pistol to handle a nuclear blast. And it's here in Ephesians 2 that God's solution for humanity is uh, is uncovered as well. What is it? It is grace. Grace upon grace. Grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, ill-deserved, unearned favor in Jesus Christ, which means this, there is hope for our world and there is hope for our lives by grace and by God's grace alone. And Paul will say to the church both then and now, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. We're going to ask first, from what? By grace you've been saved from what? We'll look at verses 1 to 3. Therein Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By grace, you have been saved, Paul writes. From what? Well, Paul lists five damning descriptions of our lives before God stepped in and turned us around. He says, number one, by grace, we've been saved from spiritual death. He says, and you were dead, verse one, in the trespasses and sins in, one, in which you once walked. Dead as in completely unable totally incapable of responding to God. That in just the same way that a corpse is unable and cannot see or appreciate the beauty of a sunset or the genius of the Mona Lisa or the radiance of a bride on her wedding day, we could not see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And that just as a corpse cannot hear or appreciate the soundtrack, a a musical soundtrack with the power to, to move an audience to tears, we could not hear the music of God's voice. And that just as a corpse cannot taste the sweetness of honey or the delight of a seasoned Salted, buttered ribeye steak, just for example. We could not taste the sweetness of God's word and his word that is more to be desired than rich food. And that just as a corpse cannot grab on to a a life ring, we couldn't grab on to salvation in Jesus Christ because we were dead at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Friend, the most intelligent unbeliever you know the most witty non-Christian that you work with, the most adventurous atheist that you live beside, and the most athletic non-Christian you know is dead. Dead to God. And so were we before God saved us by his grace. But Paul says, not only were we saved from spiritual death, we were saved from a life of active rebellion as well. Because even though we were dead 
to God, we were very much alive in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. It's like we were zombies, the, the walking dead in trespasses and sins. Paul's use of the word walked there is a, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. And the point is to describe the, the undercurrent, the focus, the, the direction of a person's life. And so the point is that before God saved you, the direction, the pursuit, the undercurrent and the focus of your life was marked by the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. Transgressions meaning the, the crossing of a moral boundary that God has established. And sins, meaning the falling short of a moral target that God has established. Save from spiritual death, save from active rebellion, and save from slavery too. Slavery to the world, verse 2. Not, not the physical planet, but instead the worldwide resistance to and the rebellion toward God that is shared by all of humanity. From the, the rulers of the nations down to the marginalized poor. Slave from slavery as well to the devil. Verse 2 again. Following the prince of the power of the air. The air there meaning the unseen spiritual realm. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We used to be so dead to God. And so active in our rebellion, the devil hardly had to even lift a finger to convince us that freedom is slavery and slavery is freedom. And with but a mild hiss of the devil's tongue, we gladly march to the beat of his drum and dance to the music of his tune and were hypnotized as he drew us to an eternity in hell. And so we happily submitted ourselves to the first law found in the book of Satan, which is this, quote, do as thou wilt. Because it says here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were therefore saved from the wrath of God. End of verse 3, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Someone described the wrath of God like this. You heard it earlier in the prayer. God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve to condemn it. That was on us before we were saved by God's grace. That was being stored up against us like water building against a shoddily built earthenware dam. Now, why on earth would Paul want to remind his readers of this? Like, raise your hand today if you like it when you're having a disagreement with someone and they remind you of something that you did 10 years ago that you're now ashamed of. We, we hate it when people do that. We want the past to stay in the past. We want bygones to be bygones. So why is Paul shoving the shame of the Ephesian church's past lives in their faces? Well, here's why. Because he wanted grace to feel amazing. That's why. He wanted the church 
to feel like the five-year-olds who found themselves on the seashore of the Red Sea and saw with their eyes God parting the sea before them, piling it up to two towers all the way to heaven. He wanted the church to think that grace was amazing. And you know, church, the reason that some of us can can come to church and sing the songs and listen to the readings and pray the prayers and stay awake through at least some of the sermons and then go back home and live our lives as though nothing has happened is because we just don't believe that we belong in hell. Sin is a theory to us. It's a theological word to us. It's not a horror to us. But when sin is no big deal, grace will be no big deal. And when grace is no big deal, the church won't be a people to the praise of God's glorious grace because God's grace won't feel glorious. And so the point is, in order for us to feel amazed, we have to first feel appalled. And so, friend, remember your roots. Remember your roots often. Don't airbrush your past. But remember what God saved you from so that grace would feel amazing to you. Astounding to you. Glorious to you. Life-changing to you. But to those of you who are here today and are unconverted, from what I must say to you today is that what we've just read is not in your past. It is your present reality today. And the greatest mistake that you can make in this moment, moment would be to just simply live in denial and just roll your eyes to the reality of what Paul is saying here. I know many of us have uh, followed in recent days and in this past week of the uh, Titan submersible, uh, I heard this past week that the, the pressure of 3,800 meters of water is the equivalent to an elephant stood on one foot and then 226 other elephants standing on top of that elephant. And under that weight, five people lost their lives. And what shocked me was that the owner had been warned repeatedly. He had been warned, and this was his exact response to one of those warnings, quote, if you're not willing to take risks, don't get out of bed in the morning. God forbid that that attitude is in this room today. God forbid that you silence your conscience, suppress the truth, and tell yourself, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Friend, if a submersible could not bear up under the weight of water, you will not bear up under the weight of the fire of God's wrath. Heed Paul's warning. Second question, by who? By grace you have been saved. By who? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved by who? By God. But God, Paul writes in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us reversed all of the effects that sin had caused in our lives. If you put verses 1 to 3 together with verses 4 to 7, here's what you get. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And you were enslaved to the world and to the flesh and to the devil, but God, being rich in mercy, And because of the great love with which he loved us, has enthroned us with Jesus Christ. And you were children of wrath, deserving of hell. But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, will make us trophies of his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ forever. Living specimens to the wealth of his grace in Jesus Christ. What a reversal. What a God. Prior to this week, I I, I thought that the the richest man in the world uh, was Elon Musk. Uh, It turns out it's this guy called Bernard Arnold. I don't know if any of you have even heard of him. He has about $250 billion, and so he should be okay to retire anytime around now. Well, let's say that Bernard Arnold decided one day to spend his wealth on you. Let's say that he decided not to spare even a single penny, but that he would exhaust, he would utilize all of his riches on you. Every change that that would make in your life, the house you lived in, the cars you drove, the the food that you ate, the clothes that you wore, would say something about him. It would say, he's that rich. He's that wealthy. He's that affluent. And the point that Paul is making here is, our resurrection from spiritual death Our enthronement with Christ says something about God. He is that merciful. He is that gracious. He is that loving. And the good news is he has enough to spend on us all. Because you see, money is what Arnold has, but mercy, love, and grace is what God is. And therefore, his mercy and his grace and his love has the same chance of running out as God himself has in running out. God can't run out because he is infinite. And therefore, his mercy and his love and his grace is infinite. And therefore, he has enough for you. 
So if you're here today and you're, you're not yet a Christian, friend, let me say this. If you were to die today and go to hell today, you would only have yourself to blame because God has enough mercy, God has enough love, God has enough grace for you to cover the worst of your sins. And so if in the end you are condemned, it will not be because there's any shortage in God. It will either be because you didn't believe God's testimony about himself, that he is that merciful, that loving, that gracious, or it will be because you didn't believe his testimony about you, that you are that in need of his mercy, that in need of his love, that in need of his grace. But both forms of unbelief make God a liar. Friend, do not make God a liar. He is not a liar. He is the God of all truth. And therefore, believe his testimony about himself. Believe his testimony about you. And be saved by his grace in Jesus Christ. Where do you receive that grace? You receive that grace at the cross of Christ. That's where you receive it. Because there at the cross, the wrath of God that should have fallen upon us fell upon him. And the judgment that should consume us fell upon him. And the punishment that should be endured by us was endured by him. So that God's mercy and God's love and God's grace could fall afresh on us. And my word to us believers today is this. Never forget, friend, that God is more than a match for man's depravity. Now, why do I say that? Well, friend, I say that to us today because in our circles, we have a good grip, a good grasp on man's total depravity. But if we don't have an equally firm grasp on God's superior power, then evangelism will feel like a fool's errand. And so although we should never downplay man's depravity, we must always remember that God is superior in his power. That on the back of verses 1 to 3 come those two words, but God, more than a match for all that came before, more powerful than we are depraved, but God more sovereign than we are evil, but God more gracious than we are rebellious, but God is more merciful than we are sinful. And therefore, we can be bold and we can be very courageous in our evangelism because that same God, the God of verse 4, is with us and goes before us and has, has promised to empower us. And therefore, friend, your witness to your colleagues, your classmates, your neighbors, your family is not a waste of time. It is how the dead are raised. It's how you were raised. By grace, you have been saved. From what? By who? And then thirdly and lastly, 
for what? Saved by grace for what? Well, look at verses 8 to 10. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says, by grace you have been saved, not as, re- not as a result of works, that is not as, as a reward for your good behavior, not as your due for your obedience to the law, not as payment for your love of neighbor, but only because of God's free, undeserved favor toward you in Jesus Christ. But for what purpose? For what? We'll answer, for good works. That's what, for good works. And so, in, in a very real sense, friends, we, we bring this message to an end right where we began. Because Paul told us in verse 1 that we used to walk in the death of our trespasses and sins. But now he tells us here, now that we've been raised from the dead, we are to walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand. That we are to walk in them. What are some of those good works for us? Well, Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 are really the answers to that question, aren't they? We're going to spend the the second half of this series answering the question, now what? Now what? Now that we've been saved. Chapter 4 says that we're to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Chapter 5 says we're to be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 6 says children, obey your parents in the Lord's. But but before we come on to chapters 4, 5, and 6, let me say this to us today. Be assured of your identity before you work on your piety. Be assured of your identity before you work on your piety. Identity is the root. Piety is the fruit. And don't miss that very intentional order in verse 10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you put that in reverse. And you say work in order then to become God's workmanship. You will abandon the gospel. And you will forsake the very power you need to obey in the first place. So then, friend, are you assured of your identity in Jesus? Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, could you pass an exam on what it means to be a Christian? I'm asking, do you feel like a Christian? J.I. Packer once said that whenever we wake up in the morning, Whenever we go to bed at night, wherever, whenever we're waiting at the bus stop, whenever our minds are free, we should tell ourselves these six truths about ourselves. Truth, truth number one, I am a child of God. Truth number two, God is my father. Truth number three, heaven is my home. Truth number four, every day is one day nearer. Truth number five, my Savior 
is my brother. And truth number six, every Christian is my brother too. Be assured of your identity before you focus on your piety. The one leads to the other. But friends, also reveal your identity through your piety. Reveal your identity through your piety. You see, when the church gladly walks in all that God has prepared for us, we demonstrate the transforming power of the grace of God. We, we put it on display that we are God's artistry, born of heaven, washed in his blood. See, when the greatest among us in the eyes of the world becomes the least, and when the orphan and the widow become our top priority, and when we give, hoping to receive nothing in return, and when we pour ourselves out for those who could never repay us, we reveal God's new way to be human to the world. I want to end with this. There was a, a Roman emperor called uh, Julian back when the church was about 300 years old. And he had to acknowledge through gritted teeth that the piety and the love and the good works of the Christians, he called us Galileans back then, was destroying paganism in the Roman Empire. And this is what he said about us. He said, these impious Galileans, Christians, not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape, their love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. By grace you have been saved. With grace you are now to live. Amen. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray together and then we'll stand and worship. Father in heaven, Father, who are we to be on the receiving end of the riches of your mercy, the greatness of your love, and the wealth of your grace in the person of Jesus Christ? But we thank you that that is who you have made us. And we thank you that that is our identity. And Lord, we pray that our piety and our witness would flow out of our identity in Jesus. Flow out of who you have made us in Christ. And that we would put the one on display as we practice the other. Lord, would you help us. And Lord, would you bless us. And cause your face to shine upon us as we seek to commit ourselves to these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.